Okay, Saints, Matthew chapter 21. We'll be starting this evening in verse 18. So we didn't get all the way through it. We got partial way through it. So let's just bow our hearts, seek the Lord, and jump into our text. Father, we're so grateful that when we come here to this place, that you through your spirit continue to wash us. You continue to draw us closer and closer to you. And Father, we just, we're in awe. We're in awe with how much that you have set your love upon us and how you, Lord, would reveal as you have been doing these foundations. And you're giving us truths, Lord. And you're helping us to retain, to digest. You're assisting us, Lord, with truly beginning to understand what it is that the whole of your word declares and how everything, everything points to you, Jesus. It all does to your greatness and to your goodness. Well, again, Lord, we're simply asking that tonight you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church. We ask it in Jesus' name and all the saints said, Amen. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 21, verse 18. Now, in the morning... As he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it, and he found nothing on it but leaves. And said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did this fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Surely I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. I want to pause there as we look to this, because we left off as we came to this one portion and as we're looking at this one area now, keep in mind that what we have covered here in Matthew 21, we've looked at this chapter as the chapter of fruit. Initially, when Jesus came in on the triumphal entry, the people were claiming the Hosannas, but they were really saying, God, what fruit are you going to show? Jesus, what fruit are you going to do? Are you going to come and you're going to conquer the, the, the Romans? What are you going to do? And so... When he came in, he looked at their fruit. And he says, listen, we're going we're to deal with the issues within the temple. And we're going to look at your fruit. And I know you want to look at mine. We're going to look at yours. And then as he continued, we then began to see how, as he looked at the fruit that they had, it was how not only what, what they expected out of Jesus and their fruit, but we also took that time to look at how Many times well-meaning Christians already see this is what your and my fruit shall be. They'll dictate to us what the fruit shall be. And it's usually some form of righteousness. And so here what they were saying is, your righteousness isn't good enough. Let me add to it. Let me say you need this and you need this and you need this. And so, and that's what those who were, you know, the money changers were doing. As the people would come to the Lord, they said, the way you're coming isn't good enough. And how many times do well-meaning Christians do that with us 
as they begin to try to inspect our fruit, the way you're coming to God isn't good enough. Let's try this and let's try this. And so they'll go to rules and regulations and where Jesus says, just come to me. And after he cast all of them out, then we saw what Jesus expected the fruit, the, the, the blind and the lame. They just came to him. They came to him. And then the children, we saw their fruit and how the religious leaders were saying, listen, do you hear what they're saying? Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus, haven't you ever read? Of course I hear what they're saying. They're spot on in their fruit. They're just worshiping me. That's all they're doing. And they're not coming for any financial gain. They're not coming so that um, they'll have you know, a better place in society. They're just simply worshiping me for who I am. And so he leaves them in verse 17. He goes out to the city of Bethany. He lodges there and now he comes back in the morning. And when he returned to the city, it simply says that he was hungry. Um, I understand that about Jesus. Him and I have this thing in common. We love food. And, but it talks about his humanity. He was hungry. He comes into the city and he sees this fig tree. As he sees this fig tree by the road, he came to it. He found nothing um, on it but leaves. And he said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. Now, Mark's gospel said that he spoke this the next day it was dead. And so we understand to, you know, to wipe out a tree in a day is pretty good. And what's interesting is this. As we note here that he saw a fig tree couple of things that maybe as you've heard studies in the scripture, you've done studies in the scripture, I think it's important to point out that there are different items that the Lord will use as types or symbols and to say, this is what represents something else. Now, when it comes to the scripture, you guys know John you know, 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. So when it comes to the area of the vine and branches, what the, the vine is, is an individual or individual Israelites. So when he talks about a vine, he talks about a branch, he's referring to an individual. However, when he talks about the fig tree, he's referring to national Israel. When he talks about an olive tree, he's referring to spiritual Israel. And so some people say, well, the olive tree is Israel, and it is, but when you look at when he uses the olive tree as this type, um, he's going to be always referring to the spiritual aspect of Israel. So just something for you to be aware of, that when he talks about the vine, he deals with the individual. When he talks about a fig tree, he's dealing with national Israel, not spiritual, but national Israel. Um, you call it the, the religious system of Israel, but national Israel. And the olive tree, of course, is going to be spiritual Israel. So he sees this fig tree. And the fig tree now, amazingly, has a lot of leaves on it. Now, with the fig tree, normally what happens, it begins to have buds. Then it begins to have leaves. And then the figs begin to grow. And so at any point, you could go to a fig tree, even as the buds are starting, you can eat them. They're still real sweet, and you can still eat it just as a bud. Um, but as the leaves come, then the, the fig trees begin to, to, to um, build. But he sees his fig tree by the road, and when he comes to it, he finds nothing. And so this tree 
has what looks like it should be fruitful. It has a bunch of leaves, but it has no real fruit in it. So when you compare that now to national Israel, when you, re, when you compare that to religious Israel, all of a sudden that's a very clear picture. He's been dealing with the leaders of Israel. And as he dealt with the leaders of Israel, when he comes down there on the donkey, he's literally told the people, go get the donkey. I'm fulfilling prophecy. They all knew that he was fulfilling prophecy. They were quoting from Zechariah. And as they were doing that, the leaders did not believe. They literally see the scriptures being fulfilled in their sight. They refuse to believe. Not only do they refuse to believe as the people are now seeing it, the people are proclaiming it, they do not. And so they have this what looks like an outward fruit, but they have no true spiritual fruit. All of it is the outward. Now we've talked about the Pharisees before. Everything about them is on the outward. On the outward, they're like these whitewashed sepulchers. Real clean on the outside, inside dead man's bones. But with the Pharisees, not only did the religious leaders have a point where they're denying the very word of God, denying God who comes as the Messiah according to the day that it was spoken, as it was spoken, the people are now seeing it, they're proclaiming it, he's not hushing anyone up because this is supposed to be proclaimed, they're witnessing it, and then he comes into the temple and he sees the corruption, and there's just corruption. So there's this unbelief. There's this corruption that's going on among the spiritual leaders. Now, everyone who would be of Israel would see the leaders and they would say what? Oh, how godly you are. How much fruit you bear. And what Jesus is saying is like, it looks like it, but it's not. There's no true fruit that comes. And so keep in mind that this tree was not producing the fruit that it was created for. And that then falls over to Israel. Israel, as national Israel, was not producing the fruit it was created for. Israel was supposed to do one thing, was supposed to bring people and to allow them to come and experience this loving God, a holy God, and they were supposed to be the ones to say, come and experience this God. We're here to be just your ushers into him. And yet they rejected that. They said, no, this is only for us, not for you. They wouldn't allow people to come in. As a matter of fact, not only would they not allow the Gentiles, they sort of prohibited them, but also anyone who would come seeking, they would put up roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. So not only did this tree not produce the fruit that what it was created for, but Israel was not producing the fruit that it was created for. And then, of course, you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask that third question. Do we produce the fruit that we were created for? See, when God says, I'm putting you here in this workplace, I'm putting you here in this neighborhood, I'm putting you here in this body, and what, why does he place us there? It was to what? So that we would then allow God to do that work through the Holy Spirit and we would be producing that fruit, drawing people closer to closer to Jesus Christ. And so as Jesus now comes and he returns, he's hungry, he sees the fig tree by the road, he finds nothing on it. 
And so he says, only the leaves, no fruit but leaves. He said to let no fruit grow, and immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? So what Jesus does is this. What he actually does is reveal to everyone who's walking by that this tree has never produced fruit. Because as we look to what the Lord is doing, he's simply unmasking the truth of what's behind this tree. The leaves make it look good. The reality is it's not. And so he says, I'm going to make the tree live up to its reality. If you're not going to bear the fruit, everyone's going to know, I'm going to even take away your leaves. That's the way that God is trying to show the nation of Israel. If you're not going to be bearing fruit, I'm going to show the entire Israel what you really are, that you are fruitless, that you are not going to be this tree that's a blessing. Now, I want to start by reading to you just one portion in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. I'm going to start reading in verse 16. I'm going to read down to verse 20. You notice we went through it. It'll just be a reminder. But in Matthew 7 and 16, it says, You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor... Can a bad tree bear good fruit? Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So we already know Jesus has talked about the fruits. He's talked about the kind of trees. Now, the unique thing is this. Not only does he use this fig tree as a type of national Israel, but if you take a look at the foundations of where God shows us what the fig tree was all about, the very first mention of the fig tree found way back in the book of Genesis. As a matter of fact, it's the third tree that's mentioned in Genesis. You initially have the, the, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. You have the tree of life. And then the third one is actually found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. I'm simply going to read it to you so that you can follow along. But in Genesis 3, verse 7, it said in verse 6, the woman, you know, she saw the food, she took the fruit, and she ate. She gave it to her husband, and he ate. And then verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves coverings. Interesting that they didn't use any other tree but a fig tree. The fig tree right now becomes this man-made covering of I'm trying to now hide who I really am. And so the leaves were what? The leaves were the masking. And that's what was happening here with this fig tree. The leaves were the masking. Although there was no true fruit, the leaves made it look like it was. The same thing that was happening to the religious leaders. Although there was no real fruit, they're outside. The, the trappings of all they did making it look like fruit, but in reality, they never had any. One other passage I want you to jot down <clears throat> found in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 8. The key verse is going to be verse 13, but I'm going to take you from 11 to 13, because in verse 11 it said, For they have healed the hurt of my daughter, of my people, slightly. In other words, they're trying to comfort them with lies. 
saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. In the time of their punishment, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Now, verse 13 of Jeremiah 8. Surely I will consume them, says the Lord. No grapes shall be on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, and the leaf shall fade, and the things that I have given them shall pass away from them. So now you begin to see this word from Jeremiah being applied here to this fig tree. And he says, in your lies, in your deception, and you wanting to believe something that is not true, and you're trying to sell this to others. And he said, so because of that, he says, I'm going to literally take your figs and not have them be on the tree. And I'm going to allow all the leaves to wither and the leaves to fade too. So as Jeremiah prophesied, Jesus here, in a sense, is almost fulfilling that prophecy as he comes. And we would just think it's just a fig tree, right? And so... We understand here that this tree is already fruitless, and the only thing that Jesus begins to change is this outward appearance on it. One other passage that you're aware of, we've covered it once before. The last one I want to do is to look at the area of the figs, and that's found in the Gospel of Luke chapter 13. We've read this before. We'll read this again tonight to keep it in the context, but I think it's important as we look to this tree. So in Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 6, Jesus says this, and I'll read down to verse 9. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down, why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that, you can cut it down. So now we see here that there is a man, he planted um, a fig tree in a vineyard. And so as he has this vineyard, he has this vineyard, he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. Well, that sounds a lot like what we're seeing here today. So he said to the keeper, look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and have found none. Now think about this. If this is this symbol of national Israel, Jesus's ministry has been for how long? Three years. For three years, he's been trying to find fruit with this religious leaders. And the reality is he's found none. Now he still pursues, he still seeks, he still wants it. And so the thing is just wipe it out, cut it down. And amazingly here, the one says, he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not after that, you can cut it down. In a sense, you see almost the father coming and saying, here's Israel, national Israel is not bearing fruit. Let's just wipe it out. And Jesus is this one guy who says, listen, let me pour life into it. 
I will pour life. And literally, that's what he does. He pours his life into this. And he says, give it one more chance to do it. If it does, fine. Let it have this fruit. But if not after, then cut it down. And so we begin to see here, this is that beautiful thing where here's Israel as a type, failing as the national Israel for three years, looking for fruit, finding them, finding them. Jesus identifying there is no fruit. And eventually what's going to happen is this. The reality of who you are inwardly is going to be revealed outwardly. And as beautiful as the, the, the fig tree looked, it meant nothing. And think about this. As beautiful as the temple looked, what was it? Well, we learned earlier in the chapter it was a den of thieves. He had to drive the people out that were marketing there at the temple. And so we begin to see this beautiful picture here of it's just simply, this is who you really are. I'm going to just make it more obvious. In the same way, when we get into Exodus, after we finish Matthew, we'll go into Exodus. We'll just bounce back and forth for a while. But when we get into Exodus, we're going to see that Pharaoh does something unique. He hardens his heart. And then God does something unique too. Then he hardens Pharaoh's heart. And then Pharaoh hardens his heart. And so then God says, fine, I will harden your heart more. And so every time Pharaoh wants his heart hardened, God just sort of assists him with that. This is the same thing. You don't want fruit. You don't want to bear fruit. You don't want true spiritual fruit that God can say, yes, this is me. Then fine. I'm going to, you don't want fruit. I'm going to make sure that everyone knows that you don't have fruit. You won't even have leaves and you will never bear fruit fruit again. And so as Jesus says that now in verse 19, seeing this fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree, the fig tree withered away. And so we see this dramatic picture that Jesus paints with this fig tree and its reality. And understand that Jesus here this is one of those things where in his words, it's very destructive. He said, I'm going to reveal to everyone else what you really are. And so your leaves are all going to wither. No fruit will grow on you ever again. Now, there are certain times where in the ministry of Jesus that he allowed what is deemed something that's negative or something that's destructive. One is here when he withers the leaves on the fig tree and he simply wipes it out and will never bear figs again. Another was this. Remember when he allowed the demons to go into the swine and immediately what the swine did is they ran and they went off the cliff and they all died. They all drowned. So much so when the townspeople came, they wanted Jesus to leave. It's like, you can't be around here. You're just getting in the way of our marketing of these unclean swine. And so there are certain things that Jesus will do in his ministry that in a sense will look like it's destruction. But keep in mind that the destruction is never towards a person. It's never anything negative towards a person. It is towards the unclean swine and it is towards a tree that is already not bearing fruit. He's just making these things evident. The swine that are unclean get what? More unclean. The tree that is not bearing fruit is even more revealed it's not bearing fruit because it won't even be having the leaves. 
And so as we look to this point, now verse 20, when the disciples saw it, they marveled saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? Jesus has this opportunity now to teach them, one, this fig tree, but to teach them what it represents and what they can now do. So verse 21, Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to this fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Two things I want you to note about this passage here when they ask, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? That's the question. So Jesus now answers and gives them a two-part answer. In verse 21, Jesus said this, Surely I say to you, if you have faith, and do not doubt. The first thing when he says, how did the fig tree wither? Belief. This just simple belief. This is just the Lord saying, if you have faith. So the first thing that he does when they say, how does it happen? It's faith. The second thing is this, verse 22. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. So two things to make note. One is prayer or the first is faith, the other is prayer. Now, how does that fit into what we're looking at at National Israel? Well, keep in mind that this was their two biggest things that was already revealed in this chapter. The first thing was the faith. Jesus comes on this donkey, as it is written, comes in, they're all saying, Hail the King, Blessed is you comes in the name of the Lord. They realize that he's the son of David. They realize the Hosannas. They're now saying, save now. Not me, but save now. And so as they come, they're desperate in their need. And the religious leaders don't believe. And he's saying, what you need to do is this. You need to believe, first and foremost. And now keep in mind that when we do believe, it's not our faith that is what we do, it's not like we have to believe in our faith. How great is my faith? It's I believe in what? Well, when he caused this fig tree to wither, what did he use? Oh yeah, the power of God caused the fig tree to wither. So when you're realizing what faith is, and a lot of people get tripped up because they think that here Jesus is saying, oh my goodness, I say to you that if you have faith, faith and do not doubt you'll do not only what i've done to the fig tree but you'll say to this mountain be removed and be cast in the sea and whatever things you ask in prayer believing you will receive there are a lot of people that are looking at this passage and saying that what jesus is saying is carte blanche you ask you get now think about this if you're looking at the context of what jesus has just done is he really saying that you can be as selfish as you want you can be as indulgent as you want, that not only did these religious leaders not believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, and we're going to see this built up even further as we get into this chapter as he looks to the teaching of John the Baptist, but not only do they not believe the people and what was said, but then they make what? They make the 
his house, which should be a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. Because if Jesus is actually saying, whatever you want, you can do, then our goal here is to do this. Go around and kill as many fig trees as we can. Now, who in their right mind would think, I'm going to use faith to kill fig trees? It isn't faith to kill a fig tree, because what he did was this. He revealed what was really inside that fig tree. He revealed what really was that fig tree. And what he's saying is this. You want to know what's really inside you? You want to know what's really inside someone else? Then come closer to Jesus Christ. That inspection, when Jesus comes and says, I'm going to look and I'm going to see, how close do you mind people getting to you to really put an inspection on your life? Do you like God to say, just search my heart, do anything you want to do, come into my life and do it. And we're like, no, nah, just kind of stay away a little bit. And I don't mind you being like near my life, but don't get too close. Remember how close Jesus wanted to be? There in the upper room, he would, after supper, lay aside a garment, he'd take a basin, and, and he would then, you know, gird himself with this cloth, and he would begin to wash his disciples' feet. That's close. That's intimacy. Um, very, very few people have ever touched my feet, and I hate to say it, very few people will ever touch my feet. Um, it's just me. You have to rebuke me later, but that's just the way I am. However, if the Lord says, this is, this is what my ministry to you is, remember what Peter said, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. If I don't wash your feet, you have no place you know, with me. And if you don't allow the Lord to get close and intimate, then he's saying, you're not really mine. Because I love you enough where I will get close and I will get intimate. But I think we have a tendency of wanting to say, I don't want close inspection. I'm okay with God looking at a distance and people looking at a distance. But when you really look close, then I'm going to be revealed for who I am. That's what God wants. This is what true faith is. I can come to God and I can say, you search my heart and see anything you want to see. If there's something you need to fix, show me. Because if I have an area of my life that's not bearing fruit, then I want you to know about it. I want you to tell me about it. And I want to surrender it to you. And I want you, Jesus, to allow your life source to now come and fertilize and dig and give me your life source so that it bears fruit for you, not for me. And so the people who have this tendency of thinking that what Jesus is doing is he's saying carte blanche, whatever you want. If you name it and claim it, you can blab it and grab it. You can ask for anything you want and God's going to give it to you because if you ask believing, you're going to have this. And if you pray asking anything, Whatever thing you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. And it isn't about being selfish. It isn't about being indulgent. Why? Because he's speaking to his disciples. As he's speaking to his disciples, because they're the ones that said, remember now in verse 20, when the disciples saw it, they marveled and they said, he's speaking to his disciples. Who are the disciples? Luke 9, 23. If anyone desires to come after me, let him first and foremost 
deny himself, pick up his cross daily and follow me. It isn't about praying what you want, but it's really when Jesus taught us to pray, what did he teach us? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to have your focal point. Let me become the instrument to do it. Not me, not my will on earth be done in heaven. That's not it. It's not like I can get the ones that just rub the genie lamp. Poof, God, you have to take care of this because this is what the scripture says and people are taking it out of context. So understand what he's trying to teach his disciples. When they're saying, what went on here? He's saying there's two things that you need to focus on. You need to focus on faith, which is the power of God. And I think it's important for us to, to recognize that area is that God is the one who does all things. We just believe that his power does it. That's how he can do anything that he wants. And then he says... Not only will you do to this fig tree, but you also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. Now understand what he's doing. He's standing on which mountain? The Mount of Olives. He's on the Mount of Olives, and he's not saying just any mountain. He said, you say to this mountain, the Mount of Olives. In other words, the Mount that represents spiritual Israel. When you're saying that you want to move the spiritual and you want to just say, I'm going to take spiritual Israel and cast it into the what? Well, let's just say it's an abundant water source. We could call it like torrents of living water. If you want to see fruit, if you want to see, okay, here's what's happening. How can we do what you did? It's just not how can we slay a fig tree. So you have to try to grasp that understanding because people will say, I'm going to take this two verses and say, whatever you want, you're going to get, and I'm going to divorce it from everything else that was said before it and from the chapter itself. So when you look to this, if you want to say, I'm going to look to God's promise and I'm going to believe God's promise, I have no problem with that. I do the same thing myself. If it's God's promise, God, you're going to do it. However, when you simply say, if I say it, you have to do it, then apparently Paul had it all wrong when he said three times, three times I cried out to God to say, you know, would you, would you take this, this thorn away? And yet God answered and said, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. So when you're trusting in God and when he says, listen, you want to know what happened here? Faith and prayer, faith and prayer, faith and prayer. And here, the religious leaders, they didn't have any faith. They wouldn't believe, although it was right there in front of them with the people. I came down on a donkey. They had no faith. They, even when it's facing them, they, they don't. And then in prayer. Um, so those two things that we're looking at. And so here, as Jesus now says, Father, this is a perfect example to show national Israel what they are so that my disciples can see this parable in living color. And so God says, perfect idea. Let's do this. Let's bring so they have an understanding. So all of these types now fit in from verses 18 through 22. 
And so as we look to this, now comes verse 23. Now when he came into the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Well, verse 24, Jesus answered and said to them, I also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 25, the baptism of John. Where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, well, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered and Jesus and said, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, by telling them he's not going to tell them, he's already told them. You know that, right? So as he now comes into the temple, so understand what's happening. He's already driven out those money changers. He now comes back into the temple, and he was teaching. Other gospels said he was teaching a great multitude. So he has a lot of people now listening to him as he's explaining the kingdom of God there in his house. And as he's there, notice what happens. The chief priest and the elders of the people, the very leadership of Israel, come in and they interrupt his teaching. And they have literally that kind of spot to come in and interrupt his teaching and say, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority. Now, their authority came from what? Came from the rabbis that they followed. Now, keep in mind, we've already talked about how they would quote Rabbi so-and-so did this, like Rabbi Hillel said this, and Rabbi Shimei said this. And that's where Jesus would say, you've heard it said, but I say to you, he had this authority within himself. So all these others were looking for the authority. The authority that they had came from what? came from their teachers and came from the people that they sat under. So they're asking Jesus in front of the multitude and say, by what authority are you doing these things? One, clearing out the, the money changers. Two, coming in and now sitting and instructing the mass multitudes. Why do you think you have this authority? Now, Jesus within this multitude that has now had his teaching interrupted. They hear the chief priests. They hear the elders of the people. These are their leaders come and say, who made you boss over here? Where did you get this authority? So Jesus now answers in the midst of the multitude, and this is incredible. Now understand, as he answers in front of all of the people, Remember what they themselves had answered in verse 26. But if we say we from men, we fear the multitude for all count John as a prophet. So Jesus here already saying, I know where these guys' minds are. I know where the leaders are. I know where the multitude is. I have an understanding of where this fruit is. And this is now the fruit of what? 
John the Baptist. Because what happens is this. He asked him the question, I will ask you one thing, if which if you tell me, likewise I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? So his baptism, and as you know, his baptism was that baptism of repentance. Now, I'm going to take you down to verse 30 and 31 for just a moment. We'll come back up here to verse 24. But in verse 31 and 32, Jesus said this, Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him the first, Jesus said, As surely I say to you, the tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you, for John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. And he goes on to say, but tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent and believe him. He said, you saw the power of the Spirit upon John. And you were there in his baptism. And there when John was baptizing, what did he say? Well, over and over, we begin to see here this incredible fruit of John. Because what John would do is this. Remember something amazing about John and his fruit. Is when you see in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 41. It made the statement that John did no signs. He didn't do any miracles. It wasn't like he said, okay, we're going to baptize. Let's just part the Jordan. You all line up. Water comes back. Part the Jordan. Next. Now, that would be cool if that was a sign. But he didn't do that. No signs. No signs at all. But everything that he said about this man, everything that he said about Jesus Christ was true. And so Jesus said, out of all the men born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. Now, when John was baptizing, one thing that he would do is he would see Jesus and say, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This is his fruit. He just pointed people to Jesus. Everything he said about that man was true. John is the greatest of all the prophets, the greatest of all the men born of women up until that point. And so why? Because he just pointed out Jesus Christ. And he pointed out Jesus Christ has just come to Jesus Christ. And so here, he says, what did John do? Now, of course, he, he preached this baptism of repentance, saying, you need to get right with God. And he, John would say this, I'm a messenger. I'm not him. I'm simply a voice of one crying in the wilderness, and I'm simply a servant to the one. And he's the one. Because when I saw the Spirit alighting upon him, this is the one whom God would say, He's the Messiah. And I know it to be true because of the witness of who he is and what God told me and what God is doing. So through this, I hope that didn't lose it. So through this, we begin to see this glorious point where now Jesus is asking them, the baptism of John. Bring them back to the clarity of who John is, John is doing. And so we see here, as he declares this, verse 24, I'll ask you one thing. 
You want to know authority. You want to understand what's going on, why I'm bearing this fruit. I'm going to ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you but what, by what authority I'm doing these things. So what he's telling them is this. Your answer is my answer. When, when you tell me, I'm going to tell you. So that baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? Was God the one who did this work through John or was it simply men raising him up? Well, understand that what they were doing is what? Men were raising up men. These false spiritual leaders that were already corrupt were now bringing in more disciples and making them more corrupt. And so that's where they were getting their power, their authority, and where Jesus got his was the same place as John, given directly by God. And so he simply says in verse 25, the baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? Now what they begin to do is this. They don't look to say, well, where did he get it from? You understand they're not wanting to answer the question. Jesus said, where did he get it from? Did he get it from heaven or did they get it from men? And they begin to say, not what is the correct answer, but what is the most expedient answer for us? Because at this point, when Jesus asked that question, the multitude that had been hearing his teaching and have now listened to these leaders come and question him, what authority do you have? He says, oh, speaking of authority, let me ask you a question that everyone here can hear too. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or men? Now they're debating what answer is most expedient, and they reasoned among themselves saying, let's see, if we say from heaven, then he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? Now understand, this whole issue of belief once again comes in to John's fruit was pointing to Jesus. Their fruit was what? They didn't believe. They couldn't partake of what John was doing. And so they reasoned from themselves, among themselves, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? So at this point, if we say it's from heaven, he's going to say, yeah, it was from heaven. You, you, you understood what John was doing. You saw him. You heard his words. He pointed to me. And as he did so, you guys failed to receive him. Now, amazingly, it just so happened that tax collectors and harlots would hear him. Tax collectors and harlots would believe and they would repent. They would forsake and they would begin to walk a life that would be pleasing to God. But you guys would not even believe them and the fruit that God was bringing through John the Baptist in his ministry. And so we see here, they said, verse 26, if we say from men... Well, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So they have this question. We say it's from God. He's going to say, Why didn't you listen to him if it was a God? Because 
if it was from heaven, you should be listening to that voice of the Lord. If we say from men, then all these people who understood John and who watched John and who realized and saw like Jesus coming here to Jerusalem, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. John was what? The same thing, a fulfillment of prophecy. As the scripture said, he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the paths of the Lord. We see this building upon itself. And so they said, well, if we say as a men, well, we fear the multitude. I find it intriguing that they fear the multitude. They don't fear God. They don't fear God, but they fear the multitude. So what they're trying to do is this. I don't know if you've ever seen someone lick his finger and figure out which way the political wind is going. And whichever way the political wind is going, that's the stand you take. And amazingly, they could not answer. They wouldn't answer. And so rather than just simply speaking the truth and saying, well, what is politically beneficial for us, rather than just saying the truth, how do we begin to sidestep the question? And so they do that by saying simply this. We do not know. We do not know. I want to take this for just a moment, go into our own society, because there is a debate that has been going on not that long, only for a couple of years. And the debate is this. If a man is born biologically a man, and if a girl is born biologically a girl, are they men or are they girls? Well, I would say what God has made, he made it. He knows what he's doing. So if a man is born a man, why would a man say, now I'm a girl? Our society has now said what? I don't know how to answer that. I can't answer that. What's the right way to answer that? And what happens is there's this political power that says you can't answer it according to truth. And I don't know why they say look to the science, look to the science, look to the science. But then it's like, but disregard it when it helps us. And so I, I want you to see here that there is this mindset, not just here with these religious leaders, but this mindset has permeated our society. And I hate to say it, but this mindset is permeating even within the church itself. That we take God's word and say, we believe his word is his word as long as it doesn't bend us into a direction that we're uncomfortable with. I won't make a stand that God is going to make the stand with. And so my, my thought is when God creates you know, a, a man, he created a man. When God allows a woman to be born, he created a woman. This is God. He's done this. And rather than saying, what do the multitudes say? What do the multitudes want? What do we have to do? How can it benefit us? And there are a lot of people say, well, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know the answer. What is expedient for me? And, and I'll tell you what, it's truth. Just stay with the truth. And so as they were now saying, we don't know, verse 27, he said, well, neither will I'm going to tell you what authority I do these things. 
And now he instantly goes into this parable and he says this, but what do you think? A man had two sons. He came to the first and he said, son, go work in my vineyard. And he answers that I will not. But after his, he regretted it and he went. And then he came to the second and he said likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, Surely I say to you, the tax collectors and harlots entered the kingdom of God before you. So John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not receive him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent and believe him. So now we're seeing here the, the, the fruit of the leadership. So Jesus gives him this beautiful, simple parable. A man had two sons. He came to the first and he said, son, go work in my vineyard. I want you to work in my vineyard. Now, does the father have the right to tell a son work? Yes, he does. Father has every right. And he answered and he said, I will not. He initially forced his will, but afterwards he regretted it and he actually went and did it. So you have the words that come from the mouth and the action that come from the person, right? Very simple. The second one said, I go, sir, but then he did not. So the words said one thing, the actions, something else. Now, the words of the second were very positive. The actions of the first were very positive. So he answered and he said in verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? And they answered the first one, the one who actually did what he was supposed to do, not the one who said that he would do it. And Jesus now goes to these religious leaders, and keep in mind, the multitude is still listening. And he makes this statement. They said to him the first, they said, Surely I say to you, now this is the multitude hearing, tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Now, I want you to note something. He doesn't say that they can't enter in. It just says that these other ones have already entered in. You haven't entered in yet. So when he says they believe John, they believe what he said. So John came to you in the way of righteousness. So now he brings John back up and he tells the whole, you know, multitude that's listening where John's authority came from. He said, John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. You should have believed him. You could have believed him, but you did not. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent and believe him. When you saw their actions, it should have prompted you to be in action. But what happens is this. So often, I think we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Like, I can't let people know that I'm struggling with this, or I can't let... And this is where it goes all the way back to letting God inspect everything about you. Don't say, oh, I, I don't want you to check this out. Just whatever it is in my heart, whatever is in my life, Lord, it's open for you to do this. These people saw what was happening to the multitude, and they responded to this word of 
John through the power of the Spirit, and they didn't follow suit. And so Jesus said, "Not you can't get into heaven, but these guys are already well on their way. You're not. Now in verse 33, he says another parable. Another parable. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard, and he set a hedge around it, dug a wine press, and he built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers, and he went into a far country. Now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they said, verse 41, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lest his and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits of their season. Now, when Jesus gives this parable, all they see is the parable. They don't see that he's actually telling a parable about them. Not yet. They're about to, but they don't see it yet. And so he asks this question. There's a landowner. He planted this vineyard. And as he planted this vineyard, he set a hedge about it. He dug a wide pre wine press in it. So in other words, he protected it. He expected fruit. Now, when you put a wine press in a vineyard, why do you put a wine press in the vineyard? Because you expect the vineyard to bear fruit. And he said, I put up a hedge. I put in the wine press. I built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. So he leased it to some people. Now understand, this is going to be key when you realize what the mindset of these religious leaders are. They thought that the whole religious system was theirs. We own this. We decide what we do and how we do it and how you can do it and what you need to do. They literally thought they owned it, which is why what they had made a market within that area of the tabernacle or the temple. So as here, they literally think this is our system. We own it. We're the ones who are the boss. And what Jesus is teaching them, he says, he just leased it to them. It was never, ever theirs. And that's an important thing to realize. Now, when God gives to anyone anything, keep in mind that we are called what? We're stewards of it. We're stewards of the relationship of marriage. We're stewards of our children. We're stewards of everything that we have, our income. All that we have, we're stewards of it. It's all God's. He leases it to us. He lends it to us so that we can do what we do, but it's to him that we give glory because he owns it all. We're simply the stewards of it, the servants of him. And so these religious leaders failed to understand that. They thought we are the owners of it. We are the ones who are in charge. Well, it says this, verse 34, when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that he might receive its fruit. 
It's my fruit that I want. Whatever comes of it should be mine, not yours. It's not for you. It's for me. And it's important to one grasp that here it's all God's and that we're a steward of what is God's. Now, remember now when Saul first became king and when he became the king, eventually he blew it. And God then says, all right, I'm going to you're no longer my king. I'm removing you. What did Saul do to the kingship? He said, oh, I'm not letting go of this. It's mine. I will not let go of this. Now, in the meantime, while he's not letting go, what did he do? Well, he already gave that kingship to David. He already anointed him. And David is now anointed the king. Saul's not letting go. And David's like, I'm not taking it. Because it isn't mine. If God gives it to me, I will take it. But I'm not taking it from Saul. I'm going to let God be the one to give it to me. So Saul wouldn't let it go. David wouldn't hold on to it. Not only did he not take it from Saul, but he waited for God. But then eventually when his son Absalom came, Absalom says, I'm going to take the kingdom from dad. I'm going to put a coup on him. And what did David do? He didn't fight against it. He just packed everybody up, left. It's not my kingdom. God, if you want me to be here, you'll bring me back. If you don't, then you give it to whomever you want. That's why David became a man after God's own heart. He realized no matter where I am, I'm only a steward of what it is. Israel was not David's. Israel was not Saul's. Israel was not Absalom's. Israel was God's. God gave it to Saul. And then he says, I'm taking it from you and I'm giving it to David. Can he do that? Yes, it's his kingdom. He can do whatever he wants to it. And this is why it's so important when we realize that God gave that land to Israel. He didn't give it to Israel and other people. It was only to Israel. And whether you like it or not, that land is still only Israel's. Others are there and others may be inhabiting, but they're inhabiting Israel's land. And because it's God to give to whom he wills. And God can take it away from Israel, but at this point, he's given it to Israel. And so now when it comes to this whole area of the spiritual fruit that comes, because we're dealing with here the wine press, it says in verse 34, when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the, to the vine dressers that he might receive his fruit. But the vine dressers took his servants and beat one, killed one, stoned another. Now, this is exactly what these religious leaders' fathers did to the prophets. Now, when here Jesus said he sent the servant, they're like, oh man. Within this parable, he sends a servant, they beat one, they kill one, they stone one, you know, and then he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Every servant, this owner of the vineyard sends, these people just kill them. And then he says, oh, I'm going to send my son. They're going to respect my son. And then they go, oh, here's the heir. Let's kill the heir. And then we'll, we'll have it. He says, so what is the owner of the vine dresser going to do? He says, oh, my goodness. He's going to destroy those wicked men. They knew here. Now, the problem is, is what? Remember when Nathan came to David and he told him this wonderful parable about a man, a really wealthy man who had a bunch of sheep, little poor man, he had one little sheep that he loved, he took it to bed with him, it was his family pet, it was almost like a family child, and 
Eventually, this rich man had someone come visit him, and he didn't take from his own flock, but he went and he took that one man's little ewe lamb, and he butchered it, he killed it, and he said, here, I'm going to feed you. And David was incensed. He said, that man should die, which is way above what the law says. The law says what? Well, he needs to repay it fourfold. But David here is so incensed when he sees the picture. And then what did Nathan say? David, you're the man. You are the man. Then David's just illuminated. And this is what's going to happen to these religious leaders. They're looking at this parable, thinking it's only a parable. And eventually the light is going to come on to say, oh my goodness, God gave the religious system to us as a lease. And he expected fruit, fruit that he wanted from the system, and we didn't give it. And he sent a prophet to say, this is what God desires, and they would kill him. He sent another prophet, this is what God desires, and they would stone him. They sent another prophet, and this is what God desires, and they would beat him. And prophet after prophet after prophet, they would beat, they would stone, they would kill. And then God said, I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send my son to these vine dressers. And God sent Jesus to these religious leaders. And what did they do? Well, they said among themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. We're not gonna give this back to God. We're gonna take this among ourselves. So what does God do? Well, not long after the death of Jesus Christ, um, we're going to see that within about 40 years in AD 70, all of Jerusalem is wiped out. The temple is simply that one stone is left upon another. This is what God does to their religious system. He takes all the leaves away, if you will. There's nothing left. And at this point, it has not come back as of yet until God says, there's going to be a time. And within that time, the Antichrist is going to come on the scene and he's going to allow you to build this, this third temple. And when he comes in, he'll commit the abomination desolation. But then there's going to be what? There's going to be one in the millennium. And this is going to be glorious. This is going to be God's work. And of course, that's through Ezekiel. But back to our text, he, he does say this. Verse 42, Jesus said, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. So he quotes from Psalm 118. He talks about the chief cornerstones. And then he says this, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. This is incredible now. Jesus just tells all this, these religious leaders after he told them this parable, and they said, he will destroy the wicked men miserably. Now remember what David said in, in when Nathan gave the parable? That man should die. But David said, listen, David, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. I know you're saying this is what should happen. You're not going to die. However, the sword will never leave your house. But when these people say in verse 41, he will destroy those wicked men and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus now in verse 43 says, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, 
it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking of them. Good. They got it. They understood what was happening. But then, but when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. So now they want to do one thing. They want to just, just throttle him now. They want to stop him from teaching, stop him from sharing. So now the whole multitude now heard this parable, and he said, the kingdom of God is taken from you. He said, one, John the Baptist came, and he you know, began to preach and teach repentance. And we had tax collectors and harlots. They would receive. They're getting to the kingdom before you. All these multitudes are hearing Jesus saying this to the religious leaders. And when they realize what should happen, Jesus said, this is a reality of your spiritual truth. You, the kingdom of heaven, verse 43, will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. So he says, it's going to be taken away from you. And in verse 44, and this is key, he says, on whomever, whoever falls on this stone, which is the chief cornerstone, will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. So what happens here? Well, very simply it's this. Jesus is either going to be your Lord and Savior, or he is going to be your Lord and Judge. That's the bottom line. He is going to be Lord. Just, just know this. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, he's either going to be your Lord and Savior. Now, in order to be your Lord and Savior, you're going to fall upon him. You're going to just, just fall upon and come to him and fall on him. And, and yeah, you will be broken. You will be, you know, you will be humbled and you will be broken and you're you're going to be grieving because of your sins and worshiping him for what he's done you fall on him as a chief cornerstone you are my foundation you are my access to god you are the whole reason that this temple even stands it's all built upon you jesus everything in the spiritual system is built upon you without you there is no spiritual system at all so when you fall on him, you will be broken. But if you do not fall on him and he falls upon you, then you are going to be ground to powder, which is absolute judgment, destruction. So keep in mind that you will, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. Jesus Christ will either be your Lord and Savior, you who will enter into the kingdom, or he's going to be your Lord and Judge, you who will enter into eternal damnation. And it is just the reality of here Jesus saying, I'm the chief cornerstone. Now you need to come to me. And he's telling this religious, these religious leaders and the, the, the scribes, the chief priests, in front of the multitude, all this happens. And so when they heard these parables, they perceived he was speaking of them. They're like, oh man, he got us. In front of all these people, he got us. And so what do they do? Well, they're trying to get rid of him. They want to lay hands on him, but they can't do it. Why? Because they still feel the fear of the multitude. They do not fear God at all. And I find that amazing. They can take now the son and want to slay him 
but they will not, they have a fear of the multitude because what? We'll no longer have our followers. See, they wanted this whole understanding where it's our system, we're the leaders, they follow us, we're the ones in charge. And God is trying to say, you're not the leaders, you're not in charge, God is the leader, God is in charge. He simply gave it to you for this season, honor him with it. And so, here's the thing. God expected fruit from the tree. He created to bear fruit, it did not. He expected Israel to bear fruit, especially the religious leaders. I expected you to bear fruit, but they did not. He created us to bear fruit too. And your, your question is, God, am I going to allow you to do whatever you need to do in my life so that I bear fruit for your glory, or am I going to not? And so it's just this beautiful passage of where God is trying to teach us all about fruit. And the answer is this. The very end of it is, what fruit am I going to bear? And how am I going to bear it? And it's going to be, God, whatever fruit that you want to plant in me, and whatever your spirit manifests. This is the heart. I want to see you glorified through the power of the spirit in my life. This is the fruit. And he makes it so simple. He makes it so easy. It's just here. What do I want to do? I want to be like John the Baptist. I don't want to have to do a lot of signs. I don't want to do a lot of wonders. I just want to point people to Jesus. He's the Lamb. Go to Him. And, and when you go to Him, He's the one. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He took away my sins. He'll take away your sins. The simple truth of what He does. And, and He just says, and then come after Him with everything that you are. This is the heart. And so with that, it ends the chapter um, let's pray. Mm -hmm. Father, we are so grateful for this word. So grateful for this passage. Lord, you are so faithful to teach us the many, many layers that fruit falls upon. And how it's just simply a foundation that you laid is, Jesus, we come to you. And we ask you to do whatever you need to do. You plant us where you need to plant us. And whatever fruit comes, Lord, would you be glorified? And so we, we give you this opportunity and we give you the freedom to say, just inspect us, Lord. And that if you find no fruit, Father, we just give you that permission to just dig around us, fertilize us, do whatever you need to do. Put your life into us, Jesus, that we can bear fruit for you. That we can point the lost to you. How beautiful was John the Baptist that he would take people that society rejected, the lowest rungs of the people of society, and yet they could go to heaven now because he loved them and he shared with them. Oh, Father, teach us to have that heart, to go into all the world, to go into everywhere that we can, and as we're going to learn just, just next week, they go, you know, when you talk to your family, they don't go, let's go to the highways, let's go to the byways. You're not done. Who's next? Mm -hmm. Father, teach us who's next that we need to go to to share this beautiful, beautiful gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. All the saints of God said, Amen. Amen. Amen.